So what we're doing and what we're talking about um, this summer, because it's been such a long season of disconnection uh, in, in various ways. Yes, we were connected in certain ways as a church throughout the year, but there's no denying that, that there is a, a, a journey toward something new that is beginning now, a journey toward reconnection, toward building something. So we're talking about what it means to create culture, to be a culture creator within our church and within the world, and, with, and what, it, what even the culture of God's kingdom is, all right? So we're looking at these different stories uh, in the scriptures where faithful people helped set a trajectory for, for others. People who, and stories where we see a culture that is created that helps define the kingdom of God for others to follow into, okay? Um, and to, for it to grow and to flourish. So a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at a story from Daniel with, um, with the, the three men who walked into the fire, and we, took, we talked about this balance of humble boldness. What does it mean to have both humility and conviction in really deep ways um, and, and to create a culture of that? And then last week, we, uh, we looked at the story of Joseph a bit, not the Joseph from the Old Testament, but Joseph the, as um, Sabrina helpfully defined for us the foster parent of Jesus and what it looks like to create a culture of fostering uh, and caring for things that have been entrusted to us without needing to control the outcomes. So, so we're, we're looking at these various things saying, okay, how do I play a role in all of this? Um, and so this week we're going to consider Peter and um, we're going to consider what it means to go first, okay? Uh, which is kind of a phrase that we're going to flip on its head um, because, because often, you know, we talk about not, not wanting to be first in, in humility, but what about, what about when the loving, loving attitude actually means, or the faithful attitude actually means going first in some way? So we're going to just kind of hang, hang with this idea of what does it mean to create a culture of going first? And so we're going to hop right into the story in Matthew chapter 14, and then we're going to back up like we often do when we look at scriptures. So we're going to start small, then go big, and then go back small again. All right. Um, so there's been all this stuff happening that I'm going to tell you about in a second. But in the middle of chapter 14, and I'll, I'll just explain most of this right now, Dwayne, so we don't need this until uh, a little bit later when I want to highlight a couple things. So this is in, uh, in Matthew 14, uh, chapter 22. Immediately, I'm sorry, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, all right? And go on ahead of him to the other side. They were on the edge of a lake. Uh, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land. Buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Just kind of a normal thing that occurs in the Bible sometimes, like people do. Walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Again, a normal thing that people would ask. Come he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. 
You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. Remember that. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let uh, the sick touch just the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. It's quite a story. That's the, uh, that's the smaller story. That's the, that's the little miniature, miniature chapter embedded in something much bigger that's happening, and we want to learn what bigger thing is happening so that we can learn why the smaller thing matters and then what we do with it. All right, so this is in the middle section of Matthew. Okay, this, this beautiful, amazing story um, is unfolding in the middle of, of Matthew, and Jesus has been teaching and healing throughout Galilee. That is kind of the main, the main events that are happening. And there have been this, these miraculous moments throughout already, throughout the story. In fact, this is the second lake story that's happened in the book of Matthew. The first one, Jesus is in the boat from the beginning, and you're probably familiar with it. If you're not, it's not that different in certain ways because Jesus stands up in the midst of a lot of fear, and he calms the storm. He speaks peace to the storm. So there's already been this, this, this thing. And at that point, here's the question. After, after Jesus calms the storm, the disciples look at themselves, and they, or look at each other, and they say, what kind of man is this? That's their response. Who on earth are we dealing with who can speak calm to a raging storm? to water that's moving this way and that. And so the central focus in this whole section of Matthew is that exact question. Can I tell you something? So Lynn, many of you know Lynn. Lynn was, when I mentioned that I was low on whiteboard markers, do you know I got two different mailings of whiteboard markers that week? That was two weeks ago. But then Lynn sends me this beautiful video of a teacher who learned how to refresh whiteboard markers by tying a little, tying a rope to them at the bottom and then swinging them. And you take an old whiteboard marker and you make it good. So this morning, I was like, hey, my whiteboard marker seems a little dry. So I tied it, flung it around, probably more than I'm supposed to. Now, this is not an old whiteboard marker, this is a new one. And then I opened it up and the cap had filled with ink and it exploded all over me. <laughs> And, and all over the floor. This was at like, not, this, it, was, it was quite a morning, friends. We, we have, I'm glad that we're not formal at this church because it was not a great setup this morning. But anyways, um, thankfully, whiteboard stuff like washes off easily because it, it looked like the purple was dry. It just looked like my hands were just covered in blood. It was, it was really, it was, a, it was gory. Um, but anyways, so where were we? Were we talking about white, were we talking about whiteboards? Oh, we're talking about who is Jesus. Okay. All right. Big deal. So, um, all right. So this is the big question in the middle of Matthew. Who is Jesus? And everything that's happening is intended to help us answer that question. Really, really important. Okay. So when John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus just before all of this has happened a couple chapters earlier, and they say, hey, John's in jail. And he sent us to ask you, are you the one that we were supposed to be expecting? Are you the Messiah? What is Jesus? So who are you? And what is Jesus' answer? 
Jesus' answer is take a look at the things that are happening. The blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, and the poor are being given good news. He cites like three other things too. But, but he gives examples of things that are happening. So, so who is Jesus? The question that Matthew is asking us to, to reflect on through these stories is answered by what Jesus does, okay? Not, not even primarily by what Jesus says at this point. So who is Jesus being answered by looking at the evidence? Who Jesus is evidenced by what Jesus is doing, all right? So here's where it gets super fun. So pay attention to what is happening in this section of the story. Right before this, this happens, John the Baptist is killed. He is beheaded unjustly by the king, by those in power, highlighting the injustice of the system of oppression, of Roman oppression, okay? It's unfair, it's horrible, it hurts Jesus' heart, okay? So, so there is, there is this, this, um, this oppression that is seen really, really clearly in that moment, all right? So after that, here's what we're told happens. Jesus withdraws first to a solitary place, all right? So he goes out. He goes out in the middle of the nowhere. Crowds follow him, okay? And when the crowds follow him, boop, I'm writing crowds for those of you on Zoom that can't see my, and it's, it's really good too. The, hand, the, the art works great. Just imagine that. Um, so here's what happens. He goes out, crowds follow him, he has compassion, and then we have the feeding of the 5,000. And so there's this miraculous bread out, out here. And then the story continues, and what happens after that is that Jesus, once that happens and is gone, Jesus climbs a mountain, we're told, to pray while his disciples go out on the water. And then his disciples get stuck. Ready? Here we go. Here's the waves. All right. And then there's the boat. Boop. Um, so his disciples get stuck, and Jesus miraculously moves through the water to rescue them. And then rescues them, and they land in a place called Gennesaret. And Gennesaret, when translated, means garden of riches, right? Garden of Riches, this, this beautiful land, and the people there recognize Jesus for who he is, okay? We might even say, uh-oh, ran out of space. We might even say that, that a Garden of Riches is a land that is full of, I don't know, promise, maybe? Okay, all right. So, just hang with me here. So what do we have happening in this story right now? We have Jesus going out into the desert with the people of Jesus following him out in the desert after a season of oppression that has been made, made, made noticeable. Then we have a miraculous feeding of bread in the desert. Then we have Jesus climbing a mountain to meet with God. Then we have Jesus walking through the waters, a miraculous rescue in the midst of a raging water issue storm crossing all the way across the water to a land full of promise where Jesus is recognized for who he is. Do you see what's going on? If you don't, I'm going to tell you, so don't worry about it. What we're seeing is 
Matthew is trying to help us answer who is Jesus by answering the question, Jesus is the one who is here to lead us out of the new exodus or into the new exodus. Jesus is playing the role of Moses, leading God's people into the wilderness through miraculous um, manna, right? Through, through, through providing, going up to meet with God, moving through the waters, finding eventually into a land. It's just a little glimpse. And it's beautiful though. But here's, here's the cool thing. Is Jesus Moses in this situation or is he Yahweh? He's both, right? Right? So Jesus ends up playing the role of the provider. Jesus goes up on the mountain to meet with God, but Jesus also is the one, the one who moves through the waters. Jesus is the one who provides. Jesus is the one who leads out ahead. So what we get is this incredible glimpse that we are supposed to be seeing that Jesus is playing both Yahweh and Moses, that, that who Jesus is is indeed the Son of God in all of God's fullness. That is really, really important in this episode because it's the meta story that's happening. And it shapes the smaller story with Peter in the boat, okay? So let's get back to that. We're going to go through it just simply here. So in this story, we want to know more about Peter because we're talking about creating culture. You just needed to know what's happening in the whole story because we never want to just pull the scriptures out of the big story without explaining it. So, what we're getting is in the middle of this storm, Jesus comes out to his disciples at like three in the morning. So they've been battling this storm. They are really, really, really exhausted. And he says to them, when he sees them, he says, take, they they think he's a ghost, which would not be that rare in this culture. You know, there were lots of beliefs in spirits and, and, um, and, you know, appearances of those who have died, but, but all sorts of, it wouldn't have been, yeah, they would have said, oh, this is most likely a ghost compared to anything else that it could have been instead of like a human walking on the water. Um, so, so anyways, Jesus says, hold on, relax. Don't be afraid. Take courage. And then he says, it's me, which is also the phrase ego a me, which means I am, which is the same phrase that God uses throughout the scripture in his conversation with Moses to reveal who he says. I will be who I will be. I am that I am. So Jesus says, it's me, but he actually uses the phrase ego a me, which is, hey friends, I am. It's another revelation of, of saying, God is with you. I am with you. Okay. Then we get to the next question. Jesus says, well, if it's you, G-, or Peter says, if it's you, Jesus, tell me to come out to you. Why on earth would Peter say that? That's a really important question for us. Why does Peter say that if it's you, tell me to come out to you? Because it sounds like a stupid idea. Like, if it's you, that's great. I've seen you do miracles before. Well done. I'm going to enjoy this moment. Not like, hey, why don't I come out and try the same thing too? And this is where we have to understand what discipleship is all about. So beautiful. I've talked about this before, so if some of you have heard the idea of discipleship, that's great because we need to hear it over and over and over. The rabbinical model of discipleship with a rabbi during this time had very little to do with information and more to do with imitation, okay? So, so the goal, you would go through your learning as a kid, and each layer there would be more that kind of get eliminated and go back to the family business, and only the sharpest kids would continue to go on in their schooling, and a very select few would then go and study under a rabbi. They would find the rabbi, and they would say, Rabbi, can I follow you? And if that person was bright enough and sharp enough, and the rabbi believed that they could actually successfully follow them, then the rabbi would say, yes, come and follow me. But the whole point of having a rabbi with a group of disciples was that they followed him around everywhere he went. 
The goal was not just to learn what the rabbi knew, but to become who the rabbi was. So you would, you would, you would want to be the rabbi, not just learn from the rabbi. So it makes complete sense that Peter, in a situation like this, would say, Jesus, if you are my rabbi, I have been told from the start that what my job is as a disciple is to imitate you, to do what you're doing, to become like you. So if it's you, tell me to come. And so Jesus doesn't bat an eye because he knows that this is the the journey of a disciple, is to learn to imitate him. And so the second thing is that Peter's older than all the rest of the disciples. We know that. Peter was probably between 20 and 25 years old. The disciples were almost uh, almost certainly teenagers um, or or adolescents even. And so that's really hard for us to grasp. Um, But there's all sorts of hints in the scriptures, not just historically so, Um, but but. Often, uh, rabbis would take on a disciple that was slightly older than the rest to serve as an example. So Peter, maybe 20, 21, he's the only one we're told that has a wife um, at this point. He's also the only one that we're told needs the temple tax, which would have been 20 and older. Um, So anyways, we kind of get the sense that Jesus has called Peter to help lead the way and show what what a disciple looks like to the others. And he messes up a ton, but maybe that's a part of it too. Maybe that's part of it too. So anyways, Jesus responds to Peter and says, yeah, come. So Peter does it. He takes a few steps and he's actually walking on the water. And we give Peter such a hard time, but let's remember that in this moment, Peter did something that not even the greatest Old Testament prophets ever accomplished, okay? We need to remember that. Like walking on the water was something that was in the Psalms is talked about as something only God does. <laughs> so here Peter does something that nobody had ever been able to do. Okay? So accomplishes something unbelievable, something incredible, and we only look at him and say, oh man, dude just had no faith. Um, he's the only one that said, why don't you invite me out and I'll come. We need to remember that kind of boldness. So, um, by the way, just as a reminder, this whole idea of discipleship is, is the understanding throughout the entire New Testament. 1 John 2, 6 says those, um, those, who want, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did, right? It's about imitation and stuff. It's not just about trusting God and some head knowledge. It's about living after Jesus. Okay, so let's talk then about this, uh, this, this fear. So Peter looks around and you can hit the next one. Um, he looks around, and all of a sudden, he is filled with fear when he takes his eyes off of Jesus, which preaches real well, by the way. I mean, like, you, there's a million great messages, and they're true, about, like, when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink. So we need to keep our eyes on Jesus this whole time. And that is very, very important and very true, and it's such a clear and obvious application that I'm not even going to spend time on it. Uh, but, but what happens is, is Peter begins to sink, and when Peter begins to sink, interestingly, he cries out to Jesus to save him, which is a good move, because Jesus is doing just fine at this point. Jesus isn't sinking. So Jesus is standing there. Peter begins to sink. He takes his eyes. He begins to, to not trust that he's actually able to do this or that God's actually able to help him do this. That's what we're about to talk about. Jesus grabs him, helps him up. <laughs> I, I like that he starts talking to him before like, he doesn't, like, help him up in this moment of crisis, and then they get in the boat, and then he looks at him and says, why, you know, why did you have uh, such little faith? He says it while they're out there on the water. 
they're like, you know, bobbing up and down. And he says, why, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Or maybe it's flat, I don't know, maybe the water's, and they're just totally still. Either way, though, he stays and does the lesson while he's outside of the boat, not once they get back in. I think that's pretty Jesus-like. Okay, so this, this the, the question that we need to ask is, why does Jesus say, uh, this, this Jesus question, why do you doubt, what's that all about? Ray Vanderlaan, who's this brilliant, brilliant Hebrew scholar um, that uh, just gives you this amazing glimpse. He, he's lived in Israel for 20 years and studied under, under rabbis in the system to understand it. Um, and so now he leads tours and teaches people about the, the culture. And, and he's looking, and based on all of his learning and, and everything, when he gives commentary on this, he says, and then Peter doubted. Doubted what? Traditionally, we have seen that he doubted Jesus' power, Maybe, but Jesus is still standing on the water. I believe Peter doubted himself, or maybe better, his capacity to be empowered by Jesus. Jesus' response, why did you doubt, then means, why do you doubt that I could empower you to be like me? Why did you doubt? You can do this. You can be faithful. You can join me. You have to believe that I'm going to bring you on a wonderful adventure if you keep your eyes on me. Believe what you're capable of with me leading you. And that's a lot more than self-help stuff there. That's a lot more than self-help. self-help. We sometimes go in that direction. But, but it's that when we understand the kingdom correctly, friends, this is huge. When we understand the kingdom correctly, we realize that we are not actually the ones taking the first step. Because Jesus is already out in the water. So it looks like Peter went first, but he didn't. Peter followed, but he was a first follower. He was unafraid to be a first follower. Jesus was out there, and he said, come. And so when we understand that, we are being, that the process of discipleship is that we have been given the Spirit of God to be empowered to live out God's calling in ways that we couldn't do it on our own, then we begin to Understand that it's actually safe to step out of the boat in certain areas of our lives. Um, to imitate Jesus in new ways. And sometimes that looks like bravery, and sometimes, honestly, it looks like foolishness. And I don't know if you feel like that, if you've been following Jesus for a number of years. Because sometimes discipleship feels like bravery, and sometimes it just feels foolish. Um, but I think bravery and foolishness come together in discipleship. Foolishness because sometimes radical love and faithfulness, it flies in the face of uh, of the, the societal norms, and we feel silly, or we feel in over our heads, and it just feels foolish. It feels foolish to be generous. It feels foolish to forgive when someone can hurt you again, not in toxic relationships. I always feel the need to make sure that we understand that. There's a lot of abuse that happens. But we, we feel foolish to, um, to uh, be able to rest in a world that says you have to produce all the time. It feels foolish to, to serve a meal to someone hungry when you know they might be hungry again tomorrow night. And, and so we can, miss, we can miss the beauty of all of this. And it feels obviously like bravery because taking the first step is often terrifying. But, Jesus, or, but Peter in this story set a culture of faithfulness. He set a culture of risk. He set a culture of failure, even, and of going first. So the big idea, and you can throw this up, um, Dwayne, thanks. 
The big idea is that if we don't see ourselves as empowered imitators of Jesus, we will never take risky steps of faithfulness. It's that simple. If we don't see ourselves as empowered imitators of Jesus, being given the Spirit of God, then we will never take the risky steps of what it means to be obedient. Um, so when, when we do that, when we think about that, um, that whole idea of going first in this case, then it starts to take on some practical teeth. So when we, when we begin um, to, to see ourselves as empowered like this, um, some of the things that happen in terms, of, uh, in terms of, of going first, it begins to mean that, honestly, failure is okay. <laughs> we no longer think that that's, the end, that that's the end game, that we can't screw up. We, we understand that Jesus is with us even if we do, even if we take our eyes off, even if we don't succeed at the things that we feel God calling us to in the way that we want to define it. Um, we, uh, we move beyond fears. We understand if we are empowered that Jesus is speaking to us and saying, take courage, take new steps, you can trust me. Um, we're, uh, we're tuned into where the Spirit is leading, so we become Spirit aware in new ways. Right? We're actually able to discern where Jesus is and see the presence of Jesus. We become aware in our lives of looking for opportunities to take new steps, to go first, to love well, to be self-sacrificial. And then, um, and then of course, uh, the, the final thing is that we become willing to trust Jesus more the more we do it, right? Which is kind of obvious because of what we just saw Peter do in his story. So we begin to trust Jesus in new ways, not just taking the first step, but knowing that honestly, regardless of what happens, maybe you take a step of friendship and you get rejected, but Jesus is there walking with you, saying, I've got you. Trust me, have faith. I'll keep giving you strength to continue to reach out, to continue to love. Maybe you're uh, battling some, some internal desire or, um, or, or fighting something within your own spirit and, and you feel like you just can't get a grip on it. And Jesus says, I'm with you. It's okay. I'll grab you. I'll pull you up. And we begin to trust Jesus. In, in everyday life, taking the first step does not have to be earth-shattering, but it will feel risky. Um, going first might look like apologizing and putting yourself out there. Simple as that in discipleship. Going first, um, it may look like introducing yourself to someone. <laughs> Whether you're new here or you aren't and you notice someone else who is, hi, I don't know you, but I'd like to. Maybe that's literally what taking the first step looks like in a world where that, that requires us to break out of our comfort zones. Maybe it's, it's crossing the street to start a new friendship, right? Maybe it's, um, maybe it's initiating prayer with your spouse or your children or a loved one because it feels weird even though you, you kind of do your faith on your own and, and it feels weird to take that step and be like, can we pray together tonight for a minute? And, it, and it's just taking the first step. And it opens new doors. Um, maybe it's parting ways with your money and being more generous, even though you have so many good reasons to hold on to it. And you do. You've got so many good reasons to hold on to it. But there's a big reason not to, and that's because it'll become God. Um, so if you're white, maybe it means being willing to be the first one in your family to actively learn about the roots of racism and white supremacy that we're still dealing with and take steps to help us move through it, to get rid of it. 
Maybe it means forming a caring relationship with someone who has really different life experiences than you and it feels like taking a huge first step. Maybe there's some form of compassion that you like to talk about a lot, but you're not doing much with. So you know Jesus cares about it, you are like all about it, championing it, but there's nothing in your life that's actually doing anything. And it feels like taking a big step to actually do something. And maybe that's it. Um, yeah. And maybe it's as simple as uh, trusting Jesus with your future, though things feel out of control. Trusting that the next step that you take, whatever it is, however unsure you are, that Jesus is simply with you. These faithful steps, they're going to feel risky, they're going to feel stormy sometimes, and they're going to feel terrifying. Um, but in doing so, Peter understood himself and he understood Jesus in new ways as the result of it. Um, and guess what? After walking on the water, you better believe, you better believe that the next time Jesus encouraged Peter to do something that Peter thought he was incapable of, you better believe that he remembered that Jesus was empowering him to make it possible. Even in the failure, even when Peter would deny Jesus in the middle of his life, not at the end of his life, by the way, at the end of his life, his maturity had skyrocketed when he, when he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Um, but at the death of Jesus, when Peter denied him, even that, when, when Jesus reinstated Peter, when Jesus reconciled with Peter, you can just imagine the moments of Peter remembering, this has happened over and over again, Jesus, hasn't it? Over and over again, you've pulled me back out even when I haven't had enough faith. And how much is that going to change his future, change the way that he lives, the conviction that he has about the faithfulness of God? Now, that's all because of who Jesus is. We cannot talk about this culture of going first, of putting ourselves out there, if it's not rooted in this deep conviction that Jesus is actually God with us that Jesus came and set us free, and we get to live in that freedom for the rest of our lives, that we are spirit-empowered people. So who is Jesus is absolutely crucial in all of that. That's why the unfolding story matters. Um, now imagine a church, friends. Imagine a church where everyone is truly seeking to imitate Jesus, where everyone is truly seeking to trust Jesus, where everyone is being willing to take courageous new steps of love for each other and for the world around them. Think of what we can create if that is our posture, honestly, really. If we're unafraid to try new things and fail, if we're unafraid to have tough conversations, if we're unafraid to love and be vulnerable, if we're unafraid to look foolish sometimes, think about what can happen. What a beautiful world that will be for the exhausted, for the cynical, for the burnt out on religion people who walk into our doors on a Sunday or enter our homes for a meal community or rub shoulders with us at a social event. Think about what a breath of fresh air that could be. Um, will you just dream really hopefully with me for a minute? Just dream about the culture that we can create together if we're all willing to go first if we're all willing to take new steps of initiating faithfulness of following Jesus personally and loving the world. So we're going to just pause for a moment to be still, and then uh, we'll throw the catch box around just for a couple minutes um, with a few questions that will go up on the screen. So just, just be still in a moment of, of prayer to let this, let this sink in and, and just kind of offer our hearts to, to Jesus.
Lord, speak to us here in these real moments of real discipleship reflection. Help this not to be a churchy thing. Help bring real life ways that you are inviting us to take new steps to the forefront of our minds so that we might look more like you.